Amen. God has indeed already won. That's why we're here some 2,000 odd years later proclaiming the victory that Jesus had over death and sin on our behalf. We come to worship and sing those praises today. I love it. Uh, I'm student ministries pastor here, and that's why I love that James give the, gave the plug for Johannes. Uh, I just, again, am reminded, yeah, that that's kind of partially... Uh, <laughs> It's okay. You know, I, uh, uh, I'm reminded that, you know, allowing for opportunities like this is part of what uh, we do as a church with our youth, is we train them up to raise them into dedicated followers of Christ who then get sent out uh, to declare, again, the goodness of God. And so I just love that we get to participate in that with Johannes. So um, I have a question for you this morning to start us off. It's this. Have you ever been made to feel crazy? I mean, have you ever been made by maybe someone else to feel crazy? Lucy Pavensi, she felt that way when she discovered the magic wardrobe that led to Narnia. She went into that magical wood through the back of the wardrobe and spent hours and hours getting to know the fawn and enjoying that magical, again, snow-filled place and realizing that though, though there was something wrong with, with a witch. Anyways, she comes out from the wardrobe thinking that she's been gone for hours and hours and that her family must be worried about her. She comes out bursting out. I was like, sorry, sorry, I'm here. I, I know I've been gone. I'm just right here. I'm safe. I'm okay. And all of her siblings kind of give her a look like, uh, you okay, Lucy? We just walked out of that room a moment ago. And she was like, no, 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 I've been gone for hours, I promise you. I went into the wardrobe, and I was in the land of Narnia, and I met this fawn, and I learned about a witch, and in, in, in the back of the wardrobe, again, you'd never believe it, but there's a wood filled with snow, and it's, it's a magical place. And like, okay, you're batty. Stop, stop messing around. We know you're just joking with us, pulling our leg. And she says, no, no, I'm not kidding. It's really there. And so they go over, and they inspect the wardrobe, and Guess what? It's just a normal wardrobe. They pull back the, uh, all the different um, fur coats and things, and it's just a wooden back. If you're Lucy at that moment, you are beginning to feel a little crazy. That experience was so surreal, so real. In that moment, you're like, there's no possible way this cannot be real. And so again, she's saying, no, it actually happened. She's exacerbated and frustrated, insisting it was really true. And her older brother, Peter, says, come on, Lou. That's going a bit too far. You've had your joke, hadn't you? Now let's move on. She grew red in the face. This is how C.S. Lewis describes it. She grew red in the face and tried to say something, though she hardly knew what she was trying to say, and she burst into tears. She was meant to feel crazy by her siblings. Now, I'm sure many of us have not had those moments in life, discovering a magic wardrobe. But we've had moments where we've been made to feel crazy. We've been frustrated because nobody believes us that something has happened. Or maybe as you've described a memory and you're with people who are there and you're talking about it, the people dismiss your recounting of it saying, no, you're crazy, that didn't actually happen that way. Or perhaps you've come to a position politically that none of your friends no longer hold and they just think that you're bonkers. Or maybe you've had a rousing discussion about sports and your opinion is the minority. 
Like, for instance, the Bears are secretly dark horse candidates for the Super Bowl this year. <laughs> and everyone makes you feel crazy for it. Okay, that's, you know, maybe a little bit truthful, but I kid. But in all seriousness, when we face opposition like this, it frustrates us. And it can really make us begin to waver on our thoughts, opinions, and convictions. We're tempted to fold and just kind of go with the crowd. I mean, if you can't beat them, join them. I left one experience out, though, that maybe you've had in your life, and it's this. You've been made to feel crazy because you're a Christian. Again, the popular opinion that we pick up from friends, family, colleagues, and the media is, how could anyone of sound mind possibly be a Christian these days? How can you believe those things? Or how could anybody be associated with such a hateful, bigoted group? The am I crazy thought can then sow the seeds of doubt in what's commonly called deconstruction these days. That's the personal process of questioning and beginning to, in your idea, relearn everything that you've ever been taught and about, in our case, Christianity. One day, you're sure that the flood narrative was God's unique intervention into history past, and the next you hear about the Gilgamesh epic, an ancient Mesopotamian flood narrative, and its striking similarities with the Bible's account. And you begin to think, well, wait, how do I know the Bible didn't just bum it off those other guys? These are, are real things that happen, but I think, however, the most common way that people fold and fall away is through social pressure. Again, we maybe in the minority opinion as being Christians then kind of put it back in the other people's shoes and say, how could that many people be wrong about something? Am I just the one not seeing things clearly? Am I crazy? Being in the minority is hard, especially when people think your minority position is hateful, wrong-headed, outdated, and dangerous. Nobody likes to be hated. With that kind of reality, how do we keep from falling away? Today, I want to ask that question. With all of that in the background and all the hate that we receive as Christians, is how do we keep from falling away? And what we're going to do today is search the Scriptures for that answer because Jesus has something very clear to say about it. His disciple, he has his disciples, and they're going to be hated and seen as wrong-headed and dangerous too. Again, we've been studying this upper room discourse for the last few weeks, and these are some of Jesus' final words to his disciples, and their final words to us as well. So what we're going to do is unpack the answer to that question, how do we keep from falling away? We're going to unpack it, unpack Scripture as we go, and answer that question uh, by also in answering that question, and then summing things up, and again, hopefully applying it to our lives. At the end of it, I pray that we're kept from falling away. So let's dive in now to John 15, John chapter 15, starting in verse 18. John 15, starting in verse 18. Again, if you're new to the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that's in the New Testament. The last kind of quarter of your Bible is where you can find it. Again, it's Matthew, or sorry, John chapter 15, verse 18 is where we'll start. 
And again, I'm going to read and explain as we go along. Read with me. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Let's pause for a moment there. Again, note the context of this passage. Right there in verse 17, Jesus says, these things I command you so that you will love one another. And that was just a few verses earlier, Jesus saying to his disciples, you're to love one another. We're told to be a community of love. And now Jesus says, your community of love is going to, or at least should, stand out in opposition to the world. So, he says, the world's going to hate you because you're that community of love. And he's going to explain more there, but he says the world will hate you. So, when we look at the world in John, that word world, it's not the globe or simply all of humanity, but as one scholar, D.A. Carson, puts it, it's the common created moral order and active rebellion against God. And as we see in John and the other Gospels, that includes Jews who are against God as well as Gentiles. They're part of the world. And in our instance, today, it can even include those within the church and outside of it. Again, we look at the Pharisees. Pharisees hated Jesus just as much as the pagans did. We should expect nothing less but hate. Again, he says, it hated me before it hated you. Let's continue reading. It says in verse 19, if you were of the world, he's going to tell us why they hate us. It, the world hates us, not only because it hated Jesus. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If I could sum this up, I would say that the world is tribal. It likes its own, and it hates you and those outside of it. And when you are in allegiance to Jesus, you're no longer part of that world any longer. And so it's going to hate you. And again, Jesus says why, because Jesus has chosen these disciples as well as us out of it. And again, it's something that we have to understand the visceral kind of reaction here. Um, I, I, many of you perhaps play sports, um, and I, I don't know this experience firsthand, but I know that some of you uh, love to play the, the game soccer, right? Football, as it's known across the world, right? I'm more of a football guy, you know, like the NFL, go and tackle people. Um, it would be like this, the, the hate that the world feels for you. If a football player who plays for a Premier League team, for instance, okay? That, that, that guy goes and makes lots of money and, you know, has this great career, um, let's just say playing for Chelsea, and then all of a sudden the World Cup comes around, and guess what they go and do? They play for their national team, not for, you know, again, their Premier League team. And now, let's say, for instance, you have one friend who's on, uh, you, have, you have a couple people who are playing together, and you, you have... Some, these two guys that are on, on Chelsea, right? And then they meet up in the World Cup, okay? Guess what happens? That friend of yours is now your enemy. You want to take them down and kick them out. Make sure that you get the victory. What's happening here is Jesus is saying, 
you are no longer part of that group, that tribe. They're going to hate you. They're not going to want anything to do with you because I have chosen you out of it and because you follow me. Let's read verse 20 here. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. What Jesus is basically saying here is Jesus is tapping back on something he said earlier, that a servant's not greater than his master. So you guys should not, what he's saying to the disciples is, you should not expect to have better treatment than I did. Again, if, if I was persecuted, you will be persecuted. You're not going to garner fame and attention and accolades because you're following me. And in fact, if they hated me, they're going to hate you because a servant is no longer greater than his master. We should expect no favors as Christians, no accolades, and no love from the world. Then he says something curious here that uh, is a little interesting to me. It feels like it's a little out of left field. He says, if they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Again, it, it seems almost positive in a, in a list of negative things. And so there's a couple options that we can do here. One, we can say, if they kept my word, and kind of implied in that is, and they won't, then they will keep yours, and they won't. Maybe, but elsewhere, Jesus, in later in the discourse and elsewhere in the Gospels, expects that some people will listen. So I think the better, uh, better interpretation is this. If they kept my word, and some of them did, then they will keep yours, and some of them will. But the point of him saying that is that I, my words, my life, will always be a dividing line. There will be people who are for me and against me. And when you teach what I teach, when you live as I live, you will always have opposition. Some will listen, but most won't. Let's next move to verse 21. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Again, will be persecuted because they ultimately don't know the one that sent Jesus, and that's the Father. Verse 22, we're going to read 22 through 24 together. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also, and if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. Let's pause. Jesus says again, if he had not come, then they would not be guilty of sin. I, I don't think this is saying that they would have been, you know, guiltless and sinless prior to Jesus coming. Again, that contradicts the rest of scripture about all of humanity being sinful, being held accountable before God. But now that Jesus has come, he has shown himself to be the way, the truth, and the life, John 14, 6. He's shown himself to be the Son of God, to be the Messiah, the anointed one. Jesus is saying, now all the, all the sins added up are not worse than this. You've seen the fullest revelation of the Father, me, and you've rejected it. That's the sin. 
D.A. Carson, again, to quote him in his commentary on the Gospel of John, says this, the idea is not if Jesus had not come, that people would, not, would have continued in sinless perfection. Rather, by coming and speaking to them, Jesus incited the most central and controlling of sins, rejection of God's gracious revelation, rebellion against God, decisive preference for darkness rather than light. He finishes, rejection of Jesus' words and his works is thus the rejection of the clearest light, the fullest revelation, and therefore it incurs the most central deep-stained guilt, end quote. To reject Jesus is to reject the fullness of God. It's like when the IRS starts knocking by sending you letters, okay? They send you letters, and then uh, you ignore them. Then you start to get phone calls, and you ignore them. And then this can actually happen. I looked this up. They can come to your house unannounced. Generally speaking, they're going to try and set up a meeting with you and do all those things, but they can come to your house unannounced. Now, the thing is, if someone comes to your house knocking and unannounced says, hey, I'm with the IRS, the smart thing for you to do is say, okay, buddy, show me your credentials, right? That's what you want to see. You want to see their form of ID. You want them to prove that they're actually with the IRS. Well, again, those IRS people usually will carry two forms of identification, and if they have those two forms of identification, you better be sweating bullets. What's happening here with them, the, 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 the first century and Jesus, is they have missed that Jesus is the fullest, most authoritative example of God. Again, for you to deny the ID cards of the IRS and just say, oh, you're a phony, and then shut the door in their face, again, you're in big trouble. To then now see how we, finding ourselves here in this first century context, have done that all in our lives before we believe in Jesus. We've shut the door and said, Jesus, no, you're not the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the fullest revelation of God. And if we shut the door in his face, if we refuse to believe his credentials, his works that he did, his testimony about himself, then we're just like those first century Jews. To reject Jesus again is to reject the fullness of God. Again, it's serious. We're not dealing with money here. We're dealing with the weight of eternity. So, before I move on to verse 25, maybe you have some questions, as I did in studying this passage. What should and shouldn't I be hated for? And what type of persecution should I expect? Well, I think we want to be hated for the right things. Again, we look at Jesus' life and his examples that he lived to maybe expound that for us. Jesus healed people on the Sabbath. He healed a, a man's withered hand on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees freaked out about it. And they were very angry at him that he had done work on the Sabbath. And Jesus basically chastises them and says, you're forgetting to do good on the Sabbath is a good thing. You're forgetting what the Sabbath is for. You're too concerned about all the religious rituals and culture you've placed around the original command to keep the Sabbath. 
Which one of you, if your animal fell in a pit, would not go and help it? Jesus says, to do good on the Sabbath is an okay thing. And for us Christians, we want to be hated for doing good and right. Another example would be, again, Jesus with the Gentiles. When he goes to the land of the Gerasenes, and there's a demon-possessed man who comes up to him, and uh, Jesus ends up casting out the many demons, and they end up going into the pigs. And again, uh, they go down and drown into the water. A, a staggering kind of story. And one of the points in that parable is this, is that the people, the Gentiles, who, who witnessed Jesus do this, they don't believe in him. They want Jesus gone. They're upset that economically speaking, much of their, their food and production is gone. And, and, and also they're a little freaked out that he's done this. And so they say, shoo, go away, Jesus. And you know what they miss? They miss the miracle. That a man who was once demon-possessed has now been set free. So for us, what I'm trying to get at in saying these things is what should we be hated for? We should be hated for, again, loving God and loving others. That if, if we continue to, uh, if we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in step and lock with the church past, present and future, do as God would have us do by loving our neighbors and, uh, and loving him, and we're doing good along that taking care of people's needs, allowing for us, or giving people the gospel and showing them the good news. If we're hated for those things, so be it. We want to be known for doing good, not for, again, living like the world. And here's how you know the world, when you're not living like the world, here's the world will hate you because of that. It'll hate you when you don't pursue mammon as the ultimate good. Again, mammon is kind of the, the word for possessions, money and materials and things. The world's going to hate you when you don't do that because guess what? You're not going to have the nicest car. You're not going to have the nicest house. You're not going to have, again, all the things they can so fill our lives and become gods instead of worshiping the one true God. And again, it, it, they may not actively hate you, but they'll leave you behind. Um, you know, I think that when we were in Texas, uh, Dallas, Texas, my wife and I, she was a, a nanny at the time when I was going to seminary, and we would, um, you know, spend time in this really nice ritzy area, Highland Park. Uh, Southern Methodist University is there, SMU. And you know what? Honestly, that was one of the places where I saw, again, Dallas, the buckle of the Bible belt. But right there, in the heart of it all, I saw this love for mammon, unfortunately. You'd walk into that neighborhood and you'd feel like a second-class citizen if you didn't have a nice car, if you didn't have the nice clothes, and if you didn't walk the talk and, you know, all these other things. I mean, my wife as a nanny, when she would go into certain circles in certain areas like that, she would like not be acknowledged, not talked to, and all these other things. And again, probably because she wasn't, I mean, she, she felt this way, didn't wear all the right clothes, say all the new things, or they knew that she was a nanny, and therefore, come on, you're not the mom and dad, so we don't have to really pay attention to you. So, the world will hate you, it will cast you aside, it will just leave you behind when you don't pursue mammon. Another one, too, is that when you practice abstinence, okay, I don't just mean sexual abstinence, but I do mean that, but also abstinence, abstaining yourself from absolute freedom. 
saying that, hey, I am my own, my body is my own, my life is my own, I'm free to do whatever the heck I want. Because you're not free when you're a Christian to do whatever you want. Because God says, when you, again, don't love me and love others, that leads to a life that's less than fully human, less than the flourishing he's designed for you. And so, we practice abstinence from absolute freedom, from sex and food and drink and certain experiences, because again, that's what God would have us do. And if we're hated because we abstain from those things, so be it. And then thirdly, before we move on, when you don't pursue making a name for yourself. When you don't pursue making a name for yourself and instead of saying, just like John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. That again, we're more about Jesus than ourselves. Making sure that God's name is great, not our own. Easier said than done. Again, the world will hate you when you leave aside possessions, when you practice abstinence, and when you don't make a name for yourself. Those are the things. When you do do those things, those are the things you want to be hated for, not the inverse, because then you're acting like the world. Verse 25, read with me. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without of cause. And Jesus is basically saying they, they had no legitimate cause. Again, Jesus was doing good. He was healing people, casting out demons. He was uh, preaching and teaching the law, talking about the good news of the kingdom. They had no legitimate cause to hate him other than jealousy and strife. And their own law, Jesus is not distancing himself from the, from, the, from the law of the Old Testament here, but he's saying their own law that they say they keep, it actually condemns them. So how do you keep from falling away? We can sum it up in this first large chunk by saying we're kept from falling away by expecting hate. We're kept from falling away by expecting hate. Again, if I were to write a job description for a Christian, this would, I think, again, according to Jesus, have to be one of the central duties. Expect and deal with hate on a frequent basis. As Christians, Hate is baked in because they ultimately hate Jesus and his Father, and by implication, us. Let's move on to our next section, verse 26 through 27. Verses 26 through 27. It says this, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So again, Jesus now moves on to talk about, hey, you're not going to be left alone. Jesus already kind of hinted at this earlier in the Upper Room Discourse, and he'll come back to it after this section that we covered today, but he's going to say, you know what? You're going to be tempted to fall away because of persecution, but I'm not leaving you on your own. You're going to be hated, but you're going to be helped. You're going to be hated, but you're going to be helped. And he says that this helper, the Holy Spirit, is going to come. And this is one of the key kind of Trinitarian texts in the New Testament. And I, and I love it. It says, Jesus is going to send the helper, and he says, whom I will send to you from the Father. So we have 
Jesus going back to the Father. I think this is alluding to uh, his, his resurrection and going to the Father and then sending the Holy Spirit to be, in a sense, a replacement for him. Again, we had Jesus in the flesh and blood, and now that he's ascended and seated at the right hand of God, he that was kind of, uh, he who was present physically is now present at the right hand of the Father and allows us then to be indwelt spiritually by the Holy Spirit everywhere all at once together as God's people. And in a very real reality, it's, it's better that we have the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus, again, as I preached on the Ascension a few months ago, not just sitting on his hands. He's interceding for us, wanting to keep us, and that's why he sent the Spirit. And here's the qualifier, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He's breathed out by the Father and the Son, and he will bear witness about Jesus. That's law court language, and he's the Spirit of truth, not falsehood. Again, the way that I think that we could sum this up would be reminding uh, that the Spirit reminds us that we're not crazy. The Spirit testifies about the goodness of the Son and the relationship that He has with the Father. He hears all that and tells it back to us. Again, Scott Swain says in his book on the Trinity, the Spirit hears all things in eternity and time that the Father utters concerning the Son. And this is what qualifies the Spirit to reveal all things concerning the Son in eternity time and to us. As the comprehensive auditor of the glory given to the Father, or given by the Father to the Son, the Spirit is the comprehensive revealer of the glory given by the Father to the Son. End quote. Again, the Spirit tells us, testifies to us that we aren't being lied to about Jesus that we aren't hucksters, that we're telling the truth. He tells us and bears witness about the Son that we might also bear witness. The original disciples did that, and we now have that too. Again, this is law court language that's being used here, and it made me think of something to help explain it. Um, a couple years ago, I went to a play at Edmonds Woodway, Edmonds Woodway uh, called 12 Angry Jurors. You might know as 12 Angry Men, from the film 1957, in 1957, and I went there to support uh, Isabel Luke. She was kind of helping with stage production and everything like that, um, and I watched this play, and I was kind of forever changed by it. I loved it, and now I haven't watched the movie, so if you've seen the movie, I'm, you know, let me know how it is, because I, I want to go and see it. Anyways, 12 Angry Jurors. There's a murder case. A son has murdered a father. They hear the case all week, and it's seemingly an open and shut case. All the jurors come in, there's 12 of them, and they say, hey, listen, guys, this is simple, easy enough, let's just pull the vote here and, and go home. And they do kind of a, a straw poll, and they find out that only 11 think he's guilty. And it's juror number eight that says, no, I, I have questions still. And what begins to happen in the movie, and also in this play, is that that juror number eight stood their ground, even when all the others were saying, no, this is guilty, let's just get us home, let's get out of here, this is so simple, it's an open and shut case, what are you doing? Again, the 12 angry jurors is, is an apt description. And what happens is, slowly but surely, juror number eight begins to sow seeds of doubt in the others and their confidence in the case, begins to point things out that they hadn't seen or considered. 
begins to wonder, and at the end of the day, it ends up being that he's found not guilty. In the same way, the Spirit helps us by giving us and helping us testify, giving us the conviction, and allowing us to know that in the end, God is true, that He's the one who has sent His Son, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And then when we believe that He's the one that has, again, redeemed us and given us His Spirit, we have confidence in that. We can hold firm and hold steady. Let's move on to our final point here. How do we keep from falling away? Well, we, again, are reminding ourselves that we need to lean into help. That's what we just explained. We need to lean into help. We expect hate. We lean into help. And finally, we read verses 16 through 1 through 4 to explain it. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And that's my subject question. That's what I've been leading with all day. Jesus is explaining that prior to this. Uh, he's, he's explaining now what he, all the things he said. He's telling us to expect persecution and hate because he not, doesn't want us to fall away. Verse 2, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus is saying to these original disciples about the time, after the time of his death and resurrection that people are going to hate you and hate you enough to throw you out of the synagogues. The Jews who were at once home there are no longer at home in the synagogues. They're cast out. And that there will be people who think that when they're persecuting them and killing them, this is the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, they will think you're offering a service to God. Friends, I, I don't know if that's ever going to be the case here in the States. It may be in our lifetime. But we know that Christians all over the world and history past have dealt with those difficulties, have suffered in that way before. And we need to prepare for that ourselves, to know that there will be an hour that we must prepare for. That, again, God will help us by the Spirit testify about His goodness. And we can have surety that we'll be okay. Because at the end of the day, here's what happens. Notice what Jesus says, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Jesus said something curious there. It's not the hour, it's their hour. They think it's their hour. They think that they have the victory. They think that they've won when they've cast the Jews out, cast the early Christians out of the synagogues, when they've persecuted them. They think it's their time. But again, God is a God of reversals. God is a God of flipping the world upside down. And when they think it's their hour, it's actually our hour. It's actually your hour. Because what happens in that moment is God reverses 
their condemnation, their hate, and their destruction, and shows them that in their condemnation of you and of Jesus and through him the Father, that they bring judgment upon themselves. They are condemned with their very actions that they do. And we can remember that at the end of the day, even when we suffer, even when we're beaten, as we sang in that song, God has already won. God has won the victory. And we can rest assured in that hope and knowing that we can prepare for our hour because we have the Spirit with us, we have Jesus' words, and we lean into that goodness, that hope, that victory. Let's pray. Father, I again just ask that as now we close today, that we would see your goodness reign supreme in our lives. That we'd be people who are reminding ourselves that ultimately we are kept from falling away by expecting hate. We are kept from falling away by leaning into help, the help that your son has given us through your spirit. And we prepare for our hour too. They think it's theirs, but it's instead ours. I pray now as we go out that we would see again our opportunities that are all around us to not fall away, but instead to lean into you and your goodness. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.